seated. You know, the flood is one of the most disturbing parts of history, isn't it? See, I think for a lot of us, we're used to seeing the flood. We're used to seeing Noah and the ark as the wallpaper border around the nurseries in our homes. We're accustomed to thinking of the flood in terms of, of coloring sheets. It's a children's story. But though it's simple enough for a child to understand, the flood is no children's story. Instead, the flood is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, moment of judgment and destruction in the history of the world. This past week, I spent a considerable amount of time looking at some artwork that, were, that are depictions of the flood. And when you begin to see as, as men have meditated on the devastation and the judgment that came as a result of the great flood that swept across the earth, you're left without any, any false feelings that this is just some kind of novel story that we just tell to our children. Uh, the pictures that I would see, it would, be, it would be moms and they would have their babies and they're lifting them up as they're being submerged, trying to lift their babies over their heads, keeping them alive as long as they could. There would be one final rock as the whole mountain all the way up to Everest is submerged and immersed. There would be one rock and on top of that rock as many people and animals. There would be, there would be tigers and lions and there would be, there would be babies and children and, and elderly and they would be gathered on the tip of this rock until eventually the rock would consume them. Vultures would be flying above head. No place to land and their wings becoming weary knowing that at some point they will share the fate of all of those that they fly above. One that was particularly graphic shows that the, the waters have finally abated. Noah and his family are preparing to, to walk and to descend from the ark and to come back into the earth. But now everywhere there once was Water, there now are bodies. And so you can imagine the scene as Noah would have descended down out of the ark with his whole family, children in tow, and they come down, and as far as you can see, you see the, the bones of animals and the bones of people, the bones of babies. No, brothers and sisters, this is not a children's story. This is a story of great, devastation. This is a story of great judgment. This is the wrath of God justly given in its most graphic form. But the story of the ark, the story of Noah, the story of the great flood is not just a story of judgment. The story of the flood is not just a story of death. In fact, the story of Noah is not even primarily a story of death. The story of Noah is the story of salvation from judgment, deliverance by God, the provision and power of God, interrupting his own divine judgment against the sinners of the world so that they might be pardoned of sin and judgment that they rightfully deserve. You see, you have to understand the devastation of the flood to understand the glory of the coming of Christ. And so it seems like an odd Christmas story, and I get that. 
It seems like an odd, uh, an odd way to approach Advent. But through the midst of the judgment, through, through the midst of the devastation, through the midst of the corpses, is light. As a God looks forward to the coming of his son by which men and women and boys and girls and teenagers and grandparents might be delivered from the judgment that they are owed. So this morning, we talk less about judgment and more about salvation. Less about justice, more about grace. Last week we saw the pervasiveness of sin, the great need for grace. But today we look and to see that this is a God who in spite of who we are and in spite of what we've done and in spite of the very nature that is inclined toward evil all the time, we are able to have grace and love and to walk in fellowship with him. So would you turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 8? To Genesis chapter 8. Now, this morning, we're going to read a bit more scripture than we would typically read on a Sunday. But this is a big story, all right? There's a lot happening in the storyline here. In fact, I cut away all of chapter 7, okay? So that's grace, okay? That's grace. Matter of fact, I even cut out the first 19 verses of chapter 8. Grace upon grace, all right? So we're going to begin in chapter 8 of verse 20. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Genesis chapter 8, beginning in verse 20. We're going to read through chapter 9, verse 22. God's inerrant and all-sufficient word says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And, I as, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you... And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you. That never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. 
I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all the earth. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Then the sons of Noah, who went forth from the ark, were Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these people, these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brothers outside. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. So as we saw last week, God has watched, and God has watched with long-suffering. God has watched with endurance and with patience as wickedness has filled the earth. And so we come into Genesis chapter 6, and he says, I have decided that I must blot man from the earth because it is the inclination of the mind of man, it is the inclination of the heart of man to only do evil all of the time. And so it says it is the inclination of man to only do evil all of the time that I must be a God of my word. I must bring judgment upon the, wor- the, the world. And so what we see in Genesis chapter 7 and the first part of chapter 8 as the flood sweeps across is we see that God is a God of his word. That when God told Adam and Eve in the garden that if you eat of this tree you will surely die, that this is the fulfillment of the promise that he had made to them. That as death sweeps across, we see that God has zero tolerance for the sinfulness and wickedness that was pervading the world. That as we saw last week, God is not a God who can simply overlook sin. For God to overlook sin is to compromise his own integrity. It is to compromise his own justice. But something strange happens here. Something strange happens as the cataclysmic cataclysmic flood sweeps across the earth. And what we see in the flood, brothers and sisters, those of us who live on this side of the resurrection, those of us who have been built into the, into the New Testament church, what we see is none other than a picture of the gospel. And so what I want to show you this morning is three different ways that the flood shows us the gospel. Three different ways that the flood teaches to us and sings to us and proclaims to each one of us the gospel. The first way is that we see that God saves a remnant. We see that God saves a remnant. God sends a flood that is just as pervasive as the wickedness. He says that wickedness has filled the earth, that it is the intention of man to do evil all of the time. And so everywhere there is a man, there is evil there. And so the only way to rid the earth is to judge the earth as a whole and to make a judgment that is equally as pervasive as the wickedness and the evil of man. And so he sends a flood to cover all of the earth. And it's effective. Almost. Almost. You see, not all of the evil was was scourged from the earth. 
Not, not, not all of the evil was purged. Not all of the evil goes away. There's a startling verse in verse 21. Look at chapter 8, verse 21. It's a startling verse. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. It doesn't sound like the flood worked. What was the issue before the flood? Why did the flood come? The intentions of man were evil all of the time. What do we see after the flood? After the judgment has reigned? After God has shown favor to Noah? After Noah has descended from the ark? What do we hear God say? The intentions of man are evil from his youth. The, the word youth can actually be infancy. The intentions of man are evil from his infancy. You see, there's something we need to know about this story. There's something that we need to understand about this story. This story is not about Noah. This story is not about Noah. I've heard this story preached. I've heard this story taught that, that, that Noah did all of the right things and made sure that he was obedient when everybody else was disobedient, that he was holy when everybody else was wicked. And because of that, because of the great man that Noah was, that God spared him from the flood. But you know what we learn right here? Noah was evil. Noah was wicked. Yes, did Noah stand out in the midst of depraved generation? Absolutely, the Bible says that. But Noah was not saved simply because he stood out in the midst of a depraved generation. Noah was saved because God was gracious. Noah was saved because God was merciful. For Noah deserved the flood just as all of his neighbors did. Noah deserved the judgment of God just as all of his friends did. Noah's family deserved the, ju the judgment of God just as the rest of the world did. So this story is not about how good Noah is. This story is about how good God is. This story is not about a man like Noah who worked and worked and worked and finally merited and earned the favor of God. This story is about how gracious God is that even when sinners are owed his judgment, that even when sinners are owed death, that he spares them by his favor and he spares them by his grace that he might save a remnant to bring him glory in the midst of wickedness. This story is not about Noah. This story is about God, about his kindness, about his grace. You see, the only reason that the flood wasn't fully effective is that God constrained his own divine judgment by his own sovereign love. God constrained his own divine judgment by his own sovereign love. That God, before the foundations of the earth, had willed that he would fill and populate the earth with bearers of his own image that would bring him glory to the ends of the age, people of every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And nothing was going to thwart the will of God. Not the wickedness of man, not the disobedience of man, not the unfaithfulness of man, not the world falling, not people rebelling, nothing was going to thwart the will of God, that God was, in, was resolute to follow through with his will in spite of man by his own power, by his own provision, by his own mercy, and by his own grace. And so in the midst of wickedness, as the image bearers of God are defaced, as the image bearers of God look more like the serpent than they do like their Lord, 
God takes and preserves a remnant. He preserves one upon whom he will show his favor. He preserves one through whom he will show his face. He preserves one through whom he will declare his glory. He preserves one through whom the seed of Eve will ultimately give birth to the son of Mary that will come to die on the cross and save the world from its sins. That in the ark, we catch a glimpse of the cross. That in the ark, we catch a glimpse of the cross. That in Noah's salvation, we catch a glimpse of our salvation. You see, the truth is, brothers and sisters, the flood makes a lot more sense than the ark does. The flood makes a lot more sense than the ark does. For the world deserved the flood. The sin of man deserved the flood. But the ark the ark was merely the kindness of God, given by the love of God, according to the generosity of God. Because our God is gracious, and our God is mighty to save. And God is a delivering, gracious, kind, long-suffering God with the image bearers, sinful as they may be. See, as I meditated on this, and as I thought about this, I started thinking, you know, I deserve the flood but I received the ark. I deserved the flood, but I received the ark. I live for myself most of the time. People around me are going to hell. People around me are suffering with all kinds of difficulties, and yet I worry about my savings account and the dishes that are in the sink. I deserve the flood, but I've received the ark. I live, for my, I live less faithful to God and more faithful to my own appetites. I deserve the flood, but I've received the ark. You see, in the, mercy, in, the, in the holiness of God, we are wicked. But because of the mercy of God, we are loved. And so through the power and the provision of God, we are saved. You and I are saved the same way that Noah was, through God's provision by God's grace, according to God's power. For this is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus came. The advent of Christ is the result of our sin. The advent of Christ is because you and I were deserving of the flood, but by God's power and God's mercy, he sent the ark, his own son, to deliver us from the floodwaters owed to our wickedness. Brothers and sisters, you deserve the flood. But by God's grace, you have received the ark if you have repented of your sin and placed your faith in the provision of God himself. So we see the gospel and that God has saved a remnant and that God will always save a remnant. Whatever else is happening in the world, God will always sustain his people. It is the narrative of the Old Testament moving forward into the new. The second way we see the, God, the gospel from the flood is that God initiates relationship. We're going to hang out on this one for a minute, all right? Because I think that's the majority of what we're seeing here in, in the last part of chapter 8 and the first part of chapter 9. That God initiates a relationship. I want you to stop for a second and think about how one-sided the relationship with Noah really is. Okay, Noah did not build the ark because he had some divine meteorological insight, okay? 
There's a lot of debate actually as to whether or not rain had ever fallen from the sky at this point in history. But whether Noah has seen rain or he's never seen rain, he had not because of some meteorological insight. It's not because he all of a sudden had some soreness in his arthritis and knew that the storm was coming, okay? And so he decided, I'm going to go and I'm going to build the ark because my, my old hip's acting up again, right? Now, how did Noah know to build the ark? God told him, build the ark, right? God told him. He didn't tell his neighbor. He didn't tell the guy down the street. He didn't tell the guy three countries over. He told Noah. God came to Noah. God initiates the relationship with Noah by going to Noah and saying, hey, bro, the rain is coming. The storm is coming. You might want a boat. And not only did God tell him to build a boat, God came to Noah and by his grace, he says, you're going to need a boat this big. You're going to need a boat made like this and made out of this. So Noah, go build a boat. Yeah, I know it's going to be in the middle of the woods, right? Like I know you're going to be up on the mountain somewhere. Just go, just trust me, Noah, build the boat. Now, what control did Noah have over that? What, what power did Noah have over that? God, Noah doesn't go to God and say, hey God, I'm thinking of building a boat. Should I build a boat? Hey, hey, no, hey God, I, I got this feeling that the clouds are rolling in and so perhaps I should come and, and maybe build a nice little, little ark out of gopher wood. No. Noah builds the ark because God initiates contact with Noah. God goes to Noah. Noah's never going to go to God. So the ark exists solely, explicitly, totally because of God's grace to Noah. And not just God's grace to Noah. God's grace to all of us who are born with the image of God. It's not just God's grace to Noah. It is God's grace to mankind. It is God's, it is God's plan of redemption unfolding right in front of our eyes. And so God goes to Noah before Noah comes to God. And this isn't lost on Noah, is it? You can imagine. We, he's been on the boat for more than a year, like 380 days. He comes down, and you can imagine by this time, y'all, that ark is smelling ripe. You know? I mean, it, 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 we kind of see in verse 19, every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Okay, came on two by two, go out by families. So there's been a multiplication process that has taken place over the year on the ark. If you've ever been around a farm, okay, I grew up in Rabbit Town, lots of farms in Rabbit Town. My granddaddy had a farm, had all that. They stink, all right? Animals stink. And people living without showers and bathtubs. Some of y'all, you made, you made it three days. Like, I'm talking to people yesterday at, at, at the funeral home for Miss Aura, and they're like, we haven't bathed in two days, and we, I, I, I'm not coming to church smelling like I smell right now. Right? It's 380 days, y'all. It's funky up in the boat. And so finally, the door bursts open. They're going to go, and they're going to f- descend down, touch dry ground for the first time in well over a year. And you can imagine that as, they, as the rains had begun to fall and as the floodwaters had begun to rise, that they heard the screams of the people close to them. 
They heard it as people beat on the side of the boat. Let us in. Let us in. They heard babies crying and children terrified. Now they walk down out of the boat among bones. Among bones. The decomposition of a body is aided by water and so it would have been two weeks. And all of the people of earth would have been bones. You might imagine that Noah walks down and there's the bones of a mother with the bones of an infant against her chest. The bones of every kinds of an, all kinds of animals. And God had told Noah why he was judging the earth. So it is not lost on Noah that the bones are there. The death has happened. The screams have come because wickedness and sin is on the earth. And you wouldn't have had to convince Noah. Noah would have known that he too is a sinner. So Noah descends down out of the ark with all of his family. And he is perfectly aware of his own sin and how God has spared him. He is aware of the sin of his sons and daughters. You spend that long cooped up with that much family and you're going to find out that everybody's a sinner. And he comes down out of the boat and what's the very first thing that he does? He builds an altar. It's the first altar ever mentioned in the Bible. He builds an off altar and he offers a burnt offering. He offers a burnt offering and he worships God. He worships God. On a burnt offering you would take and you would lay the animal on the, on the altar and you would literally burn it until there was nothing but ash remaining. You would burn it until there was nothing left. And it says that he took all of the clean animals, took, took the, the best of all of the clean animals. And you remember that at this point, Noah doesn't exactly have the, the cattle on a thousand hills kind of thing, right? Like Noah's only got what's on the boat and he takes what, this little thing that he has and he lays them on the altar and he incinerates them. The purpose of a burnt offering is twofold. One, it is for the atonement of sin. And secondly, it is for the thanksgiving of mercy. And so Noah goes, and the very first action he has is to lay the creatures on the altar and to burn them until there was nothing left to eat, nothing left to think of, nothing left to salvage. It is all given to God because God has given them everything that they have. And so in recognition of his generosity, in recognition of his mercy, in recognition of his grace, Noah says, I got nothing to give to you, God, but here's what I have. So take this, Lord. Let it be pleasing to your side. I know that if you have provided for us like this, you will continue to provide. And so he praises God. He praises God that he has been pardoned. He praises God that he has been saved. And the Bible says that it pleases the Lord. It pleases the Lord. It pleases the Lord to see this one from which he has spared. It pleases the Lord to see this one that he has spared from his judgment, acknowledging that it is only God that has provided. It is only God that will continue to provide. It is only God that gave him the grace of the boat. And it is only God that will continue to give him the grace of provision after the boat. It is only God. And in Noah's mind, he is getting on his face and praising God for his generosity. But brothers and sisters, God's generosity isn't finished yet. You see, God wasn't content to only save Noah. This, you need to listen. You need to get this. Because this speaks into our culture. 
God wasn't content to merely spare Noah from his judgment. God wasn't content to merely pardon Noah of his sin. God wasn't content to merely get Noah to the other side of the flood because how does God respond to the pleasure of the sacrifice given by Noah? I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to make a covenant with you. And it's the first time that we've seen grace in the Bible. It's the first time now that we've seen an altar in the Bible. And it's the first time that we've heard the usage of the word covenant in the Bible. So God goes to Noah, who is praising him for his generosity. He says, you think that was generous? Noah, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because I'm going to enter into covenant with you. I'm going to obligate myself to you and I'm going to make a promise to you by which everything on the earth will be blessed as a result. I'm going to make a promise to you that I'm no longer going to curse the ground. I'm going to make a promise to you that never again will I wipe every single person from the earth. I'm going to make a promise to you that never again will I let the floodwaters rise and drown all of the children. Never again will that happen, Noah. I'm going to make a promise to you that the seasons are going to come back into force. I'm going to make a promise to you that order is going to come back into civilization into the midst of this chaos. I'm going to make a promise to you that the new that the children will be that the uh, that the young animals will be born every spring and that the old will continue to die. I'm going to make a promise to you that you will have plenty to eat that I will always care for you. You see Noah didn't initiate the covenant, did he? Noah didn't initiate the covenant. Noah is on his face and he is praising God for the generosity that he has already experienced. He is, he is praising God and seeking the continued atonement for his sins. And in the midst of that, God initiates again. God goes to Noah and he says, I'm going to make a promise to you even though you're not making any promises to me. I'm going to obligate myself to you. I'm going to make myself responsible to you. I'm going to hang my bow in the clouds and I'm going to remind myself. You see, God didn't just want to save Noah from the judgment. God wanted to save Noah for relationship. God didn't just want to save Noah from the flood. He wanted to save Noah for a friendship, for a relationship, for one that's going to last for all of eternity, so much so that he's remembered in Hebrews 11 as a, as a member of the hall of faith, right? See, covenant, that's the language of relationship in the Bible. God makes a co covenant with Noah. Then he makes a covenant with Abraham. Then he makes a covenant with David. And then he makes a covenant with us. We are sharers of the new covenant that God has obligated himself to us through Christ that we can be adopted into his family in an irrevocable adoption that we might have bestowed upon us his love in a way that we can never not know again. That we can be drawn into his presence literally for all of eternity. People of every tribe and tongue and nation brought into this new covenant given through Christ. And we see this foreshadowing of this all the way back in the covenant to Noah. That God is going to save a remnant by his own power, by his own, by his own provision, by his own initiative. So that people won't just be pardoned but so that people can become children. So that we can enter into relationship with him. 
And through the relationship that his, those have with him in his covenant, the whole world is blessed, just as it was with Noah, and just as it is to be through the Great Commission and the church in the new covenant. That God has given us the gospel and the reasons that we go to Lots Creek and the reason that we go around our own community and the reasons that we go to Salt Lake and the reason we go to Awatempan and the reason we go to Swaziland is because we are partakers in a new covenant to go and to proclaim and to be a blessing to all of the people of the world that they might too share in this covenant. You see, brothers and sisters, it is not enough. It is not enough. If your view of God is that God can save me from hell, but then I can live however I want to. If your view of God is that I can be say I can be pardoned of my sin, but not live an ongoing active relationship with him, that is not the gospel. That is not the proclamation of the Bible. That is not the storyline of the Bible. You see, the flood speaks to nominal Christianity in Bible Belt America. That your neighbors... And perhaps even some of you, you believe that is acceptable, that at some point that you can profess Jesus as Lord, be dunked in the water, then go about your way, living however you want to live, and believe that that in some way is a blessing to God. And believe that somehow you have met the living God of the universe that can wipe the earth in a single thought. No, brothers and sisters, Brothers and sisters, God didn't simply pardon your sin. God sent Jesus to pardon your sin so that he could live in relationship with you. It is much grander than the simple pardon of sin. It is the enjoyment of relationship with God. The Bible calls God our counselor. It calls God our friend. It says that God is an ever-present help. It says that God is the shepherd that walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. It says that God is a father on high, enjoying and delighting in his children. The Bible says that God is a refuge and a rock, and he is not to be ignored. He is not to be compartmentalized. He is to be walked with day in and day out. Amen. Nominal Christianity doesn't hold water against the true gospel. Nominal Bible Belt, go through the motions, Christianity is in fact not Christianity at all. For God has saved you for a relationship. And so it says that God is hanging up his bow. Calvin says that we are owed a daily deluge of the wrath of God. In other words, that every minute of every day in which a sinner walks upon the earth, a flood should come. A flood should come. The earth should be purged of its uncleanliness. The earth should be filled with the wrath of God. But brothers and sisters, here we are. Here we are. And as far as you go, there are people there. The, the world population has peaked over 7 billion people now ever expanding, all because God, by his grace, has said that I am offering a covenant of peace. I am offering a covenant of peace. And so temporarily, for a little while, I'm going to hang my bow in the air, in the sky. Temporarily, for a little while, I'm going to put down my war, my weapon of war, so that people might find my grace, so that people might find the hope in me, so that people might enjoy my provision. See, you and I, we were owed the sting of the bow, 
but we have been offered the bounty of God's own table. We were owed the sting of the bow, but we have been offered the bounty of God's own table. In, Re in Romans chapter five, it says that we are enemies of God, that we were once enemies of God, but by the time we get to Romans chapter eight, we are adopted sons against, no, against whom no man can bring a charge. In Ephesians 2, we are children of wrath. But then just right after that, we are then children of grace. We were those who were once far off from God, but have now been brought near to God. Brothers and sisters, God has hung up his bow. God has offered peace to us through Jesus Christ so that we might enjoy God. Amen. Not live in guilt. Not live never feeling like you measure up. Not living trying to merit God's love to you. No, simply enjoying the walk and the, and the delight of your heavenly father. The world reviles him. The atheist denies him. The complacent ignore him. But the children of God, we enjoy him. Our God is to be delighted in. He is to be walked with. You read your Bible not because you're going to get beat down if you don't, but because you want to enjoy God. You pray not because a bolt of, he of heaven is going to strike you dead, but because you want to enjoy God. You come to church not because bad things are going to happen in your week if you don't, but simply because you want to enjoy God. And the children of God, is, is not the, the blessings of God are not enough for them. They want to walk with God himself. How many of us treat God with the same kind of disrespect that we would treat a father? Who we say, God, Father, we want your paycheck. We want the things that you can buy for us. We want the things that you can give to us. But we want you to leave us alone. We want you to get out of our lives. We want you to ignore us. No, not a single person wants a dad like that. And God is showing us, his children, that he's not a dad like that. He's not a dad like that. He is not the kind of God that will give you the blessings of heaven but the neglect of his presence. No, he is the kind of God that says, come, all of you who have found pardon in me, all of you who have found mercy in me, all of you who have found grace in me, come and join me at the table. Come and enjoy me and delight in me and walk with me and let me be your refuge and let me be your rock. Let me help you stand firm and fast in this world. Christian, enjoy God. Enjoy God. Make it your mission every single day to do what George Mueller said, to wake up and get as happy in God as you can on that day and then start your day. Enjoy God. For that's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came. To take the bow out of the cloud and to remove it from a possibility of your life altogether so that you could walk in love and delight with the Lord. The third way that we see the gospel in the flood is that God will make all things new. God will make all things new. If you read this and you set this right beside the accounts from Genesis 1 and 2, they're strikingly similar, aren't they? 
Again, the, the earth is being filled by the grace of God. Again, the earth is to be, uh, the, the animals and the people are to be fruitful and to multiply. Again, image bearers are to go and to, to, to pervade the world. Again, you see the, the seasons being set into motion. Again, you see provision and food and bounty beginning to fill the earth. And just as Adam fell by the fruit of the tree, we see Noah here falling by the fruit of the vine. Again, these, these things are mirror images of one another. Because the aim of the flood is to purge the earth of evil, to give the earth a restart, to give the earth a refresh. But what we find in just a couple of chapters over is that the refresh doesn't last very long. For the Tower of Babel is coming in which God will again judge the earth and disperse man all over the earth, confusing the languages that they speak. That again, child abuse will come and cancer is still here and sexual abuse will be real. But brothers and sisters, do you know what he's showing us? He's showing us but a glimpse of the future. He's showing us but a glimpse of the future because you know what the flood proves? The flood proves that God will judge sin. The flood proves that God is able to judge sin. The flood proves that God can wipe the earth clean. The flood ultimately proves that the serpent will be defeated. That as the floodwaters washed over the face of the earth, one day the serpent will finally and ultimately be washed beneath the flames of the lake of fire and follow and find his own condemnation and a new heaven and a new earth will be, will be created by the power of Jesus Christ in his second advent. That God is showing us that one day, all of us that have been pardoned from our sin in this life, all of us who have endured suffering in this life, all of us who have faced persecution for the gospel's sake in this life, ultimately for us, the serpent will go to his grave and we will receive the glory of heaven and the tears will be wiped from our faces because the bow is in the air. Christ is coming to return and he's gonna bring and reestablish his reign upon the new earth. God is making a new world. He is saving a remnant by his own initiative so that he might make all things new. Brothers and sisters, do you see the glory of the gospel in the flood? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I deserve the flood, but I have received the ark.